1: watching this video, that means your kit from Guanajato DIY Botox has arrived, and now you want to know how to use it. I'm Cayon here in sunny Mexico, and I'm going to show you how to do your own Botox. It might seem a little intimidating at first, but after a few applications, you'll start thinking of Botox the way you think of your regular cosmetics, like eyeshadow, if eyeshadow blocked the signals from your nerves to your muscles. Okay, got the kit open? You should find two syringes. I'll pop the safety cap off this one and hold it to the camera so you can see... Ow. Gave myself a little jab there. But you notice, I didn't stop smiling. Because it's happy and sunny here in Wrinkle-Free Land, which is just a few miles west of San Miguel de Allende. Okay, you've got your Botox and your saline. Use twice as much saline, you get half as much Botox. Use half as much saline, you get twice as much Botox. You got it? Good. It's easy. Don't worry. If you worry, you furrow your brow. The last time I furrowed my brow was during the pilot episode of The O.C., I love that show. Do it with me. Okay, I'm just going to go around my eyes here, here, here. Don't overdo it. I'm sorry. Forgot you had a needle in your hand. Okay, let's go get these bunny lines now. You might want to twitch your nose one last time because it's going to be a while before you can do it again. And here's the fun thing. Just do one side of the mouth. You'll have a totally crooked smile like a Batman villain. Scare the kids for a couple of days and then do the other side. Anyway, you'll get the hang of it. And when you do, try some of our other products, like DIY hair plugs. We sell them to a lot of famous clients. I can't say any names, but one of them rhymes with Blow Blyden, and he has a very important job in the government. Meanwhile, here's a show celebrating the 25th anniversary of Botox. And now he flew to Ireland for buttock enlargement. Colin McEnroe.
2: Well, that's true, but it has nothing to do with Botox. Uh, But it is a little problem with the Irish people we have. We just don't have them, actually. but Buttocks, I mean. Anyway, uh, just a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I always watch uh, Betsy Kaplan during the introductions to see whether she thinks they're funny or not. But she's had so much Botox, it's almost impossible to tell. Um, also, I have to say, this, the introduction we just did, I think I would have, in five years I never would have said this, but it, it wasn't word for word something that Betsy and, and I actually found on the Internet. But it's really close. There actually was this place that was selling DIY Botox, and they had this instructional video where this woman was showing you how to do it, and it seemed like a really bad idea. Uh, however, Botox is much more interesting and much more complicated than you probably think. Uh, and pro- there's a good chance that you may only know of Botox in connection with its cosmetic applications. And Even that has a few more, you should pardon the expression, wrinkles than uh, you might have guessed. And we're going to come to that in just a second. But first of all, we're going to talk about all the other ways that uh, Botox is being used. A lot of other medical applications, a lot of really interesting ideas uh, about uh, uh, about Botox. All right, so we're going to start. With uh, Dr. Robert Krug, he's a physiatrist. I hope I said that right. And medical director at uh, Sinai Rehabil- Rehabilitation Hospital and chief of rehabilitation medicine at Saint Francis Hospital and Medical Center. I hope I did all that right too. And Dr. Adi Tadinata, I said did it so well at the beginning. Dr. Adi Tadinada uh, is an oral maxillofacial radiologist at the Yukon School of Dental Medicine. I should practice these introductions in front of a mirror so I get them right. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the things that they're doing medically. With Botox. In, in just a minute or two, we're going to add uh, Dr. Eric Finzi. He's a derma surgeon and the author of The Face of Emotion, How Botox Affects Our Moods and Relationships. This is a really interesting and complicated area. Um, but um, uh, Bob Krug, let's uh, start with you. Um, you are using uh, Botox for uh, to address aspects, anyway, of a of myriad Medical problems from MS, Parkinson's, migraines, bladders, sweating. I don't know how many of these you're personally doing, but these this is sort of the the field of play, right?
3: Absolutely. Uh, you know, it it it, it it's really um, been a tremendous intervention and, and treatment modality that we can use on our patients. Uh, any anyone who's had a stroke or MS or Parkinson's, as you um, indicated, a brain injury. These are all patients that frequently have. Um, abnormalities in their muscle tone, and it can impact them in in many different facets, head position, limb position, the ability to use whatever residual strength they have, and uh, Botox can be very effective. Actually, we've been using Botox in these types of patients for over 20 years in the United States. It's only more recently than cosmesis or cosmetics, has been an FDA-approved indication for Botox.
2: So maybe we need to back up and sort of explain what this does. Uh, That strange person in the introduction uh, was saying that it blocks the signals from the nerves to the muscles. Was she right about that? Uh, You know,
3: in a matter of speaking, without getting too, you know, complicated, basically it it blocks the acetylcholine receptors. And by blocking the acetylcholine receptors, you block a whole cascade of events that results in calcium influx into the muscle fiber— and that's necessary for the muscle fiber to contract.
2: So um, let's kind of walk through a few of these things. So we did a whole show about MS. Uh, it's fascinating and, of course, uh, tragic and alarming too. So so like for MS and Parkinson's, I mean, they're sort of a little bit sort of cousins in, in certain ways. Um, explain how the Botox would be helpful. Well, again, you have patients who have lost the
3: ability to... M- to modulate their muscle tone. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine someone who has MS, for instance, who has weakness in an extremity, if they have uh, reduced strength, uh, for instance, to bring their foot up while they're walking, Mm -hmm. typically when you're walking, you activate a muscle to lift your foot, but your brain also sends signals down to relax your other muscles that would push your foot down. What happens in uh, this instance is you have co-activation of the muscles, and you have patients who are therefore catching their toes, tripping, using up more energy that they don't really have in order to ambulate or walk.
2: Um, You know, you said that uh, cosmesis came later in some ways and some of these other medical um, applications came earlier. So does that mean, I mean, are, is everything we're talking about stuff that is sort of uh, uh, approved for... Reimbursement by insurance companies and kind of accepted medical practice, or are you having to make a case in, with some of these medical conditions for Botox as the appropriate
3: yeah great great question, Colin you know there there are at least five or six now approved indications for uh, for for botulinum toxins. Botox is one of four by the way there 's four toxins now on the market it 's the first and certainly the most widely used in the United States and the one that physicians have the most uh, experience with. Um, but the the standard of care really has been for it to be used in a whole facet or or gamut of other indications that it currently does not have approval for, um, and there it really is no issue in getting it approved for those other indications as well. If I could just run down some of the ones yeah, that yeah. it is approved for: blepharospasm, which is not something that I myself inject, but usually ophthalmologists, which which is a a twitching of the eye or or a tightening of the eye so that you can't really open it. Um, cervical dystonia where your head position can often be fixed, uh, either laterally flexed or rotated or you actually see someone's head bobbing up and down. Um, The most recent indication is overactive or neurogenic bladder. And these patients, it has a tremendous impact on their lifestyle and that they're constantly feeling the urge to to go to the bathroom. They can have accidents, so they often, you know, don't want to go out and... uh, uh, become depressed and so forth. Spasticity, upper extremity spasticity, is an indication, but again, it's used for both upper and lower extremity, and that's where you have that muscle tightness that I was referring to earlier. Um, these are just some of the more common ones that it's approved for now.
2: And what are the ones that it, you think it should be and and probably will be approved for? It's being
3: used for vocal cord spasticity, so mm-hmm. folks who have trouble, um, you know, vocalizing because of that spasticity. Um, my dad actually just had it uh, two weeks ago in Florida for achalasia, which is a spasming of the esophagus, mm-hmm. uh, which was very uncomfortable for him. It's being used for anal sphincter um, spasticity or um, tone. And, and the list of go- parotid uh, gland issues, I, I left out one approved uh, indication that is hyperhidrosis, which
2: is sweating. excessive sweating. Yeah. Um, this is fascinating stuff. So, Adi, I want to add you to the conversation. I actually have TMJ. Uh, I, I use uh, an NTI, is that what it's called? A little thing I put in my mouth at night? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but but uh, this is one of the areas where Botox is being used. Explain uh, how you use Botox.
4: So, a uh, temporomandibular joint is a joint, and the pain that is associated with it, or a condition that's associated with this, the temporomandibular joint dysfunction syndrome, that has myofascial pain. What it means is that the pain associated with the musculature around the joint Mm. is what is a bigger challenge. So when they have pain of these muscles, it's more like somebody exercised these muscles the whole night, Mm -hmm. whether it would be because of clenching or because of grinding or any of these other conditions. So this is a very urban uh, problem, and more and more people are reporting this. So we really don't know how many people actually have it. So TMJD, because it is a myofascial condition that's associated with masticatory muscles, uh, a lot of dentists are finding an off-label use of this botulinum toxin. So what they really do is to inject this into one of the muscles. So basically leads them into unloading. So it kind of causes temporary paralysis of that muscle, if you will. So what it does is it relieves them from pain. mm mm-hmm. Uh, but the challenge here is that uh, we don't have any firm protocols about how often, how much is safe, what's the dosage that is. And it's so individual and pain-dependent that we really don't have any protocols. So uh, at the Yukon Health Center and the Yukon School of Dental Medicine, we're not always just focusing on what is present. We are very firm on establishing protocols, but we're looking into the future. So uh, Dr. Karen Rafael is an epidemiologist and scientist at the New York uh, University School of Dental Medicine. So she and I have partnered together, but the primary uh, investigator is in New York, where they're looking at the effects of botulinum toxin on myofascial pain, temperamental joint dysfunction syndrome, and if this, in fact, this unloading is causing some sort of a disuse osteopenia that could potentially lead to pathological fractures. So, uh, very insufficient data on this, very, very critical piece that's missing. So, that's what we're trying to study right now.
2: It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll come back to you on this first, Bob. It sounds like this, the the, the commonality, if I'm understanding it right, is that Botox is really used to treat symptoms, right? It doesn't... Cure things i mean uh, is that f- a fair thing to say that that the, the, it treats manifestations of a problem, whether it's the the joint dysfunction that adi's talking about or or the things that you're talking about yes,
3: that's accurate
2: um, and so uh, Adi, in the way that you're using it with tmj this is we're really talking about relief from the pain uh, of tmj that's what botox. That's correct.
4: So what happens with myofascial pain is the masticatory musculature that really kind of holds the joint in place is being overused. It's overexercised, and it's inflamed. So these patients have episodes of terrible pain, and uh, normal pain relief medicines are not doing them much good, and it's such a prolonged condition that really is no answer to these episodes. So uh, really, Botox injections are very helpful the bigger challenge of this whole scenario is that we do not know how much to give to each patient. We don't have firm protocols. What is more bothering is we do not know for how long we can give this because there is very insufficient data on long-term use of this product. And and also, we don't even know who are the right people to be administering this. Are these myofascial pain experts? Are these Oral maxillofacial radiologists or TMD specialists, oral surgeons. You know, and to that point, so,
3: because there really are not dentists mm-hmm. currently um, routinely injecting, through, through my practice, I occasionally get a few of these patients sent to us, but it's not something that I routinely do. Um, but, you know, it's something that I've actually advocated for dentists to do because um, I think that it makes sense
2: for them to be the ones doing this. Although, Adi, it sounds like everything that you're saying, I mean, when I hear that as a patient, first of all, patients, I guess, sort of, they think two different ways. You come in here and you're in a lot of pain from TMJ or a migraine or whatever. (laughs) You'll take anything. It's like, really? That would help? (laughs) Give it to me right now. On the other hand, the stuff that you're saying as a patient, that would give me pause. Like, wow, do I want anybody injecting my jaw area with Botox if there are so many question marks? So what's your response to that?
4: Very true. I mean, I would be concerned, but I don't know if the episode of pain really overcomes and trumps all of these other concerns and say, I want relief from pain right now. I don't care really what happens after. So that's really for the gatekeepers like us uh, who are looking at these conditions and researching these new protocols to say, really, what is it that we can do to still help them? And where is that sweet spot where we give them enough? and not so much that it causes adverse effects. So that's what we are trying to look and research right
3: now. I do want to point out, while you know, there's not a lot of research, and I'm glad that they're doing this at UConn for TMJ, that there certainly are many, many research articles um, and, and clinical experience with regard to the other um, clinical entities that we discussed and clear protocols and a good sense of what the dosing should be, and it's extremely safe.
2: Yeah, it, on the other end, Adi said an interesting thing, which is, I mean, there are also a lot of differences from patient to patient um, in terms of how they experience pain, uh, how their symptoms present, and not just with TMJ, with lots of other stuff. I mean, I would think with migraines, for example, everybody's migraine feels pretty personal and uh, and custom-made and bespoke. So does that affect your ability to understand how to dose, how to use? Actually, I'm not even sure we even talked about migraines, but with with any of these conditions.
3: Yeah, so migraine, chronic migraine which is migraines, uh, specifically 15 or more days in a month, would be considered a chronic migraine. That's an FDA-approved indication for, uh, for Botox. Um, it's a, there's a very clear protocol, mm-hmm. the you know, number of units, number of injections, um, site of injection. So it's very clear what you need to do for that.
2: All right. Um, I know somebody who might be giving you a call pretty soon. It's not me, though. Um, all right. I want to grab a call from Alex. I want to get to Eric Finzi pretty quickly here because there's uh, there are other stories to be told here. But uh, before we do that, here's uh, Alex in New Haven uh, with, uh, I think, a hyperhidrosis uh, either comment or question. Hi, Alex. Hey, how are you? Thanks for taking my phone call, John. Sure. Or Colin, excuse me. No, you can call me John. Um, it's if it's fine. I was part
5: of uh, the uh, Savin Center in New Haven, a hyperhidrosis study. And I was given a Botox treatment for hyperhidrosis, uh, 14 shots in my underarms, and it arrested my hyperhidrosis immediately. It lasted for effectively for four to five months. Um, and I've heard it works well on the hands as well, but uh, I can attest to the effectiveness of that as a, as a treatment. Uh, nothing else that I've ever taken before. Uh, orally or medically or any other way. Diet, dietary has affected me in, in the way that that did. So it was very effective, although it is expensive, I understand. And, and I'm glad to hear that it's been approved. Uh, does that mean it's been approved for insurance purposes as well, or is it just for medical use for hyperhidrosis?
3: That one goes to Bob. No, it it should be covered by most insurers. I'm not sure whether it's first or second or third tier, but um, it should be covered in, in most
2: instances. Um. Thanks for your call. Oh, you know what? Actually, I uh, hope he's still here. Let me, let me see if he's Alex. Are you still there? Oh no. I was going to ask him if it hurt. It seems like a shot in your underarms doesn't sound like that would be fun. Um, all right. Um. You know what? Uh. Let's take a quick break here. We can come back with Eric Finzi. We'll have uh, Bob and Adi with us uh, the whole way here. We're talking about Botox. Our number 860 275 Spasm. Overactive bladder. What amazing
4: drug it is Treats, many kinds of disease, no long-time side effect. Very simple, very
1: safe drug it is Botox, Botox. It's a present from the gun.
2: And we're back. We're uh, engaging in a salute to Botox on the, the 25th anniversary of its uh, approval for medical use. Uh, Dr. Robert Krug is here with us. He's a physiatrist and a medical director at Mount Sinai Rehabilitation Hospital, chief of rehabilitation medicine at St. Francis Hospital, uh, Hospital and Medical Center. I can't do the introductions today. I don't know what's wrong with me. Dr. Adi uh, Tadinata is uh, an oral maxillofacial radiologist at the Yukon School of Dental Medicine. Um, and we're, in just a second, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce Eric Finzi. But before I do that, I want to ask... Uh, Adi, Adi, one more uh, thing, which is I hear in what you're saying, some, I hear a lot of questions. I hear a lot of sentences that begin with where and why, and we don't know yet. But And, and one of them is I'm just listening to the guy from New Haven uh, with the profuse sweating issues and, and the incredible success with Botox. Uh-huh. One of the things you're asking is, well, what happens if Alex, I think his name was, has to have those Botox injections every five months for the rest of his life? Uh, it's, the drug's only 25 years old. Uh, Alex is going to live to a ripe old age. So are you sort of saying you at least feel as though you want to read more research Absolutely. about the longitudinal, Absolutely. longitudinal Absolutely. stuff?
4: Yeah, I think so, uh, especially because um, we have enough information and data from uh, space travelers, to, especially with their um, unloading issues, especially when they don't have gravity. They kind of tend to have disuse osteopenia, and that's really not any different from what happens in the temporomandibular joint. So these joints, if you have them unloaded for prolonged periods of time, yes, it relieves pain from the associated musculature, but they also go into some sort of paralysis on longer episodes. These can actually end up giving disuse osteopenia to the bones, especially the gnatic bones that are around there. So a small jab, a small fall, could potentially lead them to have a pathological fracture. And we have enough animal studies that have shown these very clearly. We we should say what you're talking about. I,
2: I, is lower bone density. The only reason yes. I know this is because... Yeah, so be
4: unloading causes lower bone density, and that in itself could be a potential challenge that right. can t- lead to pathological fractures.
2: Um, all right, so um, well, we can come back to that. Uh, we have a lot of ground we want to cover here. I do want to add to this conversation, uh, Dr. Eric Finzi, he's been waiting patiently, derma surgeon, artist, author of The Face of Emotion, How Botox Affects Our Moods and Relationships. He currently has an art exhibit um, at the Linda Warren Projects in Chicago. Uh, and uh, so, we'll, Dr. Eric Finzi, let's um, talk about this. This is, this is a part of this whole conversation that I didn't really know very much about before we started working on this show. But there's a whole school of thought um, that uh, Botox can, by, in fact, creating different configurations of your face and your facial muscles kind of create a, a, almost a feedback loop to the brain which can can change moods. Do I, do I have that right? Am I saying that even remotely correctly?
5: Yes, yes. It's, uh, there's been a, a long history of uh, theories and then followed up with lots of data to show that your face actually has a sort of privileged role in the creation of emotions and that whatever your face does in terms of its expressions, is then fed back to the brain, and your brain becomes aware of, okay, you've been smiling a lot today, or conversely, you've been frowning all day. Life must be pretty difficult out there. So the theory started with Charles Darwin and William James and, and picking up in the late 60s and the 70s and 80s. There are a whole host of uh, experiments done on people to show that if you're just frowning when you look at a cartoon, you're then going to rate that cartoon as not so funny and conversely, if you're, smi- if you're forced to smile while you view the cartoon, you have a more positive outlook. So using that hypothesis about 10 years ago, I began research to investigate and ask this very simple question. Can I actually change someone's mood by changing what they do with their face? And the advantage of Botox is that you can be very selective and just treat certain muscles, in this case, I've been treating the frown muscles, I and others. So, And these, these are the muscles between your eyebrows that uh, if you're sad or angry or fearful, those muscles will contract. And if you apply Botox there, you can basically make them quiet for three, or four months at a time. And you can then ask the question, well, what effect does that have on how you think and feel?
2: And that's an interesting question. And we do know, I think anyway, I think we know this, that, and I may be kind of restating some of what you just said, that when you smile, I mean, there actually are neurochemical processes that the simple act of smiling, even if you have no emotional basis for smiling, can create in your brain, right? I mean, certain...
5: That's correct. So the the brain doesn't uh, distinguish between whether you have a smile created because it's a you know you've been forced to smile or or you're smiling because you're really happy I mean it knows that the muscles are 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 active and you're showing a, a sign of positive affect you're happy about things and it interprets that and activates parts of the brain that are generally seen when one is feeling better so and the converse is very true as well so this whole concept that your face speaks to you is a very important one so we're all very aware that whatever you do with your face you make an expression is going to affect how somebody across the street views you or some of the person you're having lunch with but most of us don't stop and realize that whatever you do with your face actually speaks to you every single day and that's a, a vital part of the communication that we have from one part of our body to the other and because Botox allows us to uh, treat essentially any disease that has a component of the circuit that is a muscle, that is a disease that can potentially be helped by Botox. And so the question I posed more than 10 years ago was, is that frown muscle, that negative expression when you look sad, is that actually part and parcel of disease uh, and not just the consequence of it? So... um, Starting back in 2003, we started clinical trials, and the the latest that I've published with Dr. Norman Rosenthal at Georgetown uh, is in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, we were able to show that uh, those depressed patients who received Botox uh, had a 52% response rate as opposed to about 15% for the placebo uh, so it was very statistically significant, the difference between those who got Botox and those who got placebo injections. And uh, many of the patients actually went into remission. Uh, and this work has been replicated by two other groups, one in Germany and one in Texas. So, and the And the three groups, we all spoke at the World Congress of Psychiatry in Spain this September, just to get the message out there that you know that this has been replicated and these are now three randomized controlled trials which is of course the gold standard in medicine
2: so so somebody with clinical depression, I mean, that is so enervating and so disabling a disease. I mean, it makes total sense to me that somebody would be interested in trying something like that, and the return rate sounds pretty good. Not everybody responds to SSRIs or anything. I mean, there really isn't anything that's 100% effective against depression. So this sounds that's
5: very very true. Yeah, nothing, you know, the the hit rate of medicines is not nearly what we would like it to be. So any new potential treatment that's safe and effective uh would be a great boon to those millions of people suffering from depression and uh the the botox is currently in phase 2 clinical trials uh for the treatment of major depression so as you know it takes years for uh, any drug to get FDA approved, but uh, we are glad it's at least in phase two, and and hopefully in four or five years from now, if things go well, it would get FDA approved. But um, it, it takes a lot of research and a lot of time and and trials on many patients for that FDA approval. But it, the the treatment dosage and the usage. is is essentially very, very similar to the same way you treat someone who just wants to get rid of their frown from a cosmetic point of view. So it's the same location that we're doing the injections. It's just we're doing it for a different reason. Uh, We're doing it because we believe that frowning in and of itself probably in some people causes depression if you frown too much.
2: Um, In just a second, I'm going to bring uh, Bob and and Adi back into this conversation. But before we do that, I mean, I have to ask the question that I'm sure you get asked, you know, all the time and and that a lot of people listening right now are thinking, which is that um, this sounds great. And for clinical depression, it just seems like a a really interesting thing to try. And as I said before, it's, I mean, if you know people who have it, uh, you understand why they would be uh, interested in in something that that might help might work. But, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have a lot of... Larger questions outside the 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 cylinder of uh, of clinical depression about sort of what Bo- Botox culture does to us. I mean, you you mentioned Darwin, and uh, obviously facial mimicry is um, one of the ways that that people um, learn emotions. It's one of the ways infants uh, learn emotions, and so uh, you know there've been a lot of questions raised recently about in, in a culture where a lot of people are. For, are using cosmetically uh, Botox whether in fact the same reads can occur uh, on facial expressions whether children can look at their mothers and and, and see you know what those facial expressions indicate and, and match them up to moods and and maybe even uh, begin to learn their own repertoire uh, of facial expressions that you know the more that faces become a little bit frozen in certain ways the more we're in fact kind of confusing uh, one another uh, about what our faces are saying Which, how do you respond to all that
5: well great great question good thoughts what I, you know the thing is about your uh, when I treat someone for depression I'm treating specifically one area I'm not freezing the whole face I'm not touching the smile whatsoever I don't treat the forehead I'm just treating this little discreet location between the brows so it will make it harder to um, look and feel angry and sad However, uh, there are many, many muscles in the face, and there's also our voice and our posture that convey emotion. Emotion is a very complex thing, and it's not conveyed by one specific muscle. And I guarantee you that if you're a mother and you're upset with your child, I don't care how much Botox you've had between your brow, your child is gonna be quite aware that you're upset with them. Your eyes tense, your teeth, there are all these little muscles, you know when someone's angry. It's not a simple thing of, oh, there's just one little spot in the face. No, it's, you know, the, we as humans are built up of many redundant sort of and overlapping systems to express emotions. So the way to look at Botox used in this way is that it appears to have a, a dampening effect of the negative emotions it's not that you can't feel angry or sad you can you can feel horrible after you even if you can't move those muscles it's just that the signal back to the brain doesn't seem to last as long so in depression you're talking about a negative signal that's just persisting what you really want is someone if they feel angry or sad okay that's fine but you don't want them feeling angry or sad the next day generally it's a uh, in the moment, it's useful to be in touch with your emotions. But two days later, you don't want to be feeling angry about something that happened two days ago. You want to have sort of moved on. So, um,
2: Actually, feeling angry for two days is pretty much the basis for Irish-American culture. But I'll take your word for <laughs> it that elsewhere uh, it, it's not a good thing. Hey, I just want to sort of uh, draw um, our other guest into this. Um, Adi, um, I think the place where you enter into this conversation is TMJ, although it's, it's an organic problem. It's a problem that happens with muscles and joints. It's also you can't pull the mind out of it, right? I mean, there's there's a a huge mind body issue. Very true. Yeah.
4: So, like you just pointed out, it is a it's a condition, and it is a psychosomatic condition. So there is a good component of it that is uh, that has to do with the brain, and as a good component of it that is being driven. And those are the things that the muscles are going to go on and on and on and exercise themselves over their turn. So that's what makes the pain and the flaccidity and the tiredness come into action. So really, that is a big component of it. And that's why I think, you know, it's becoming more like an urban condition. More and more people are reporting it now. It's not that it was not there before, but it's now that whenever you have these high-level, high-stress jobs which really tire you and your mind is working even when you're sleeping, these muscle, muscles are going to end up contracting and they're going to keep working all night long. Um, and, and, Bob Krug, I would say the same thing to you in some ways. I mean, a lot
2: of the stuff that you're talking about, treating with uh, Botox, these are things in which the mind-body connection uh, is is intense and, and difficult to understand. And so I, I would imagine, you know, using Botox... I mean, you're not using it the same way that uh, Dr. Finzi is talking about, but are there ways in which you can relate to what he's talking about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, You know, I, I actually would... In, in many of the entities we've been talking about, um, I would turn it around in that th- what the Botox is doing is it's actually improving their quality of lives, so that they want to stay engaged in in relationships and in the community and and not withdraw. Because I think when people are either disfigured or where they're in pain or they just can't do things, they tend to get depressed. So mm. I, I, you know, I think it's impacting depression. Not directly, in my instance, but in in a lot of secondary ways.
2: Um, Let me just grab a quick call from Meg, because I think she's running out of time with us. And then I want to get back to Dr. Finzi about something, too. But here's uh, Meg from Wilton. Hi, Meg.
0: Hi, Colin. I love your show. Thank you very much. And this is fascinating to me. Um, I'm a massage therapist and an esthetician. I do facials as well as therapeutic massage. And as a holistic practitioner, um, I tend to believe that... um, You know I prefer I don't believe in masking a condition although I can tell you that let me let me say that my elderly mother before she passed away she had six children um, a hysterectomy a prolapsed bowel and found incredible relief with regard to bladder control by having Botox injection that was a miracle for her and as a middle-aged woman myself and as a holistic practitioner all these years, um, we we know just by watching commercials on TV that there are extreme problems with women losing bladder control as they mature, as well as men. So I'm very excited about the prospects of... Um, I know that that worked for my mother, and I tell my clients about it all the time, and they haven't heard of it. It's, and I imagine it's because of... Um, the regulations and controls right now.
2: Well, I'm also wondering, and you know, you made an you used an interesting turn of phrase there, uh, too, Meg, which is uh, you don't believe in masking conditions, and of course, uh, Botox is famous for several different kinds of masking, uh, particularly at at the level of the face. Um, And I'm going to ask all three of the guests a little bit about this. Um, Bob Krug, does does Botox have a bad reputation? I mean, uh, you know, as I was saying to Adi, a lot of times when some somebody's in distress, they're pretty happy to have anything that might help them, and I think that's also true uh, with Eric's uh, clinical depression patients, but. You know, Botox. Botox has a little bit of a reputation. Something actresses use uh, to look younger. Uh, do you have patients who go? What do you mean you're going to use Botox for my? Yeah, yeah
3: there's, there's no doubt that you know. I think that some people think that folks who are using it, you know, they're vain. That it's not necessary. That what's wrong with, you know, having um, aged features. That it that it, there's something you know special about that as you as you get older and and your face changes. But in my patients. It really is a lifesaver. It makes a tremendous impact and I, I don't wanna I, I don't want people to think that we're only using Botox. It's it's one treatment modality mm. combined with physical and occupational therapies or speech therapies, other physical medicine interventions, but it is a critical piece of what we can offer patients and their lives are so much better
2: for it. And Adi, what about uh, for you? I mean, do, is there a? Mo- I assume there's a moment of education that has to take place. I mean, going into doing this show, I really wasn't all that aware that Botox was used for anything except cosmesis. So, do you have to sort of say, "Oh no, that's there's Botox for cosmesis, but th- it does other things." Well, for for
4: therapy too, in my area of expertise and uh, area that I work in, definitely it's a very big lifesaver. It definitely helps people. It really leaves them off the terrible episodes of pain that they have, and some of them also are so much in pain that it almost leads them to uh, take adverse things like suicides and considerations of that nature. So yes, it is very helpful. It's very useful. However, where we worry about is, you know, on prolonged use, does it have any adverse effects? But really, if you ask me, has it helped our patients? Absolutely. It's really very helpful for patients in long-term episodes of pain.
3: And I, you know, certainly can't speak to some of the concerns that you know you're raising, which I think are valid. You know, things that need to be investigated. I can speak to though 20 years of experience in using it in um, some of the areas that we've discussed, and I have not seen any you know really adverse effect. It's very rare for somebody for to develop antibodies and to develop resistance. There's a very small amount of protein. Now they read they reconfigured um, the uh, protein content. I think back in 1997. So it's really very well tolerated. It allows people to have prolonged benefit you know, I, and again, I have experience 20 years out with certain patients. Well,
4: oh, definitely. Arkansas is more a physical issue that really renders itself into disused osteopenia. Sure. Yeah. That's, sure. that's something that we're studying. But yeah. yeah, it does help. And I mean, we don't know of any short-term adverse effects. If anything, it's only helped these patients.
2: Eric Finzi, I want to come back to you. Um, I'm fascinated that in addition to being a derma surgeon, you're also a painter, an artist. Um, you know, for artists, uh, uh, we should mention also your book, The Face of Emotion, How Botox Affects." Our moods and relationships. So artists from Modigliani to Monk, you know, would be probably a little alarmed by the notion of what do you mean? People are going to start uh, to having injections which actually change. Uh, facial expressions, facial muscles. Get rid of frowns. You know, where would some of these guys be without frowns? Um, so, s- somebody who who's so interested in the visual rendering of the face. How do you balance your your aesthetic issues against this kind of notion that we're sort of we're we're altering the physical reality that artists work off of?
5: Well, good good point there. The uh, the issue when we there are two ways that I use Botox. One is purely in the aesthetic arena. And when we use it there, it's used with a lot of, we try to use it with a lot of subtlety so that in the ideal world, someone looks better without anybody figuring out that they'd ever had Botox. And it's very easy to do that with Botox. It's just the question of, altering and adjusting the dose to the individual, such that you don't have to lose all the function. You can just diminish the part that's causing some deep lines or wrinkles, right? So that's one way. And and generally, people who have been doing it aesthetically for many years are very, very familiar with how to do it in a subtle way so that one actually looks better but looks normal. So you're not losing that. Now, um, in the medical arena, My interest in this was actually started when I was doing a series of paintings of mental hospital patients uh, based on photographs from the late 1800s in France, and I saw some expressions on these patients that were so riveting that they brought me back to growing up as a child of a mother who suffered from severe depression. And I remember walking into her bedroom and being able to read her face and knowing that, okay, today I need to go really easy, just be really nice to my mother because she's profoundly depressed. So my uh, sort of, um, uh, my, my thrust in this area really started when I was a little boy, just trying to decipher what was going on in my mother's mind. And then, realizing many years later that, hey, maybe the expressions my mother was showing were actually part of the disease and partially causing it and not just a symptom. So um, so in terms of, you know, I think it, it, in terms of its side effect profile and safety, I, I think one can use it in a very, very natural way and that when you hear these horror stories about people being frozen faces, those are usually, that's usually not from Botox. I mean, we never touch the smile, you know, when people have bad facelifts. You, you look at them and they look rather bizarre, and then they somebody claims it's from Botox. It's nothing to do with Botox. It, it's from a bad facelift. So like anything else, uh, cosmetic work can be done poorly or it can be done well. If it's done well, you're not aware of it. And if it's done poorly, then you look like poor John Rivers used to look like, you know, too many facelifts.
2: So, All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. When we come back, uh, we'll uh, continue with all of these guests, but we're also going to talk to Peter McInnes. Most of you probably know that Botox has some kind of relationship to botulism. Botulism, very scary thing. Botox, as you're hearing today, very good thing for a lot of people. We'll talk about that connection when we come back.
1: is a dead battery i really really want to frown right now could you put your finger right there and press down while i pull in the other direction there am i frowning today's show was produced by betsy Kaplan and me kione wolf greg hill tweets for us at wnpr colin and katie Tolarski is our executive producer the part of bill curry was played by kelly ripa For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff injecting each other with liquefied white packing beanies, visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the Nose goes shopping with monkeys. And now back to Colin.
2: We're not literally going shopping with monkeys, but in fact, monkeys uh, down at Yale were studied. Um, They were sort of placed in a shopping environment and it turns out uh, they are less fooled by expensive brand names than people. We may or may not talk about that on the news tomorrow. We never really know until we do it. So, um, as I was saying, uh, going out of that last segment, um, one of the things we haven't touched on here in a pretty fascinating conversation about Botox uh, with a wonderful array of guests, who I'm not going to name again because it's so sad listening to me try to get through all the introductions without stumbling, but we haven't really talked about the fact that, um, well, they're right in the name. It's a toxin. Uh, And so joining us now is Peter McInnes, uh, science writer, social historian, uh, and author of several books, including Poisons from Hemlock to Botox to the Killer Bean of Calabar. So, Uh, Peter, we're going to focus on Botox as opposed to those other ones, although we've been talking about doing a poison show, so maybe you'll come back for that one overall. But um, explain, first of all, what botulism is. Botulism is really scary, and my understanding is it doesn't take very much of it uh, to kill a lot of people.
6: It's a rather lovely poison from that point of view because it it is exceedingly effective. But uh, there are lots and lots of poisons around, you have to realize, in, in fact, one of, one of the books I wrote for children is there are poisons everywhere. There are poisons all around you. I actually wanted to call it Poisons for Children, which would have sold lots and lots of books, but the, the publisher wouldn't allow that. <laughs> uh, but uh, just a bit of uh, history first. Um, botulism gets its name not from the, the bug itself. The, uh, it, it's the other way around. Uh, botulus was the Latin for a little sausage. And botulism was something that came first from sausages and then from canned meat. It's an anaerobic bacterium, lives in the soil and sometimes gets into meat. And when it does, it produces these nasty toxins, so someone chews on this. And until the early 20th century, it was mostly called temane poisoning. And then it became botulism. And um, it it was just one of these things that was around. But it, it often happened in canned meat. Because being an anaerobic bacterium, you could seal the meat... If you hadn't properly sterilised it, the bacteria could go wild inside there and the meat would be really, really nasty. So uh, it was that way around. And in fact, as near as I can make out, it wasn't known, the the bacterium itself wasn't known until about the 1930s. It seems to suddenly appear in newspapers in Australia after that time. And that's generally a pretty good measure because Australia used to pick up the news of the world anyhow. So I guess probably it was discovered around about
2: then. Um, I'm going to ask, our early guests a little bit about this in just a second. But while uh, I have uh, you, uh, Peter, um, it, it does seem that this is a botulism is a, a, a terrifying thing. And it's even been uh, implicated uh, or there were concerns that uh, some people might use it for bioterrorism. So it seems kind of odd that it's turned into this medical application. How do we get, get from botulism to Botox?
6: well you know it's not unusual to use poisons uh in fact paracelsus who was uh, mumble mumble 1500s thereabouts possibly a bit earlier uh was probably the first to say the dose makes the poison but um in the 19th century alfred swain taylor said a poison is a small a poison in a small dose is a medicine and a medicine in a large dose is a poison <laughs> so you know we've got lots and lots and lots and lots of poisons that we use um, at the moment, there's some interesting work going on using cone shell toxins. So, you know, don't, don't t- say, oh, it's because it's a poison, we can't use it. Most of our drugs, I- even antibiotics, are, are poisons. They're, they're more poisonous to bacteria than they are to us.
2: And, Bob, I so, think you, you said that Botox is one of four or five um, medicines like this, right? Yeah, there are now four oh, that are FDA hundreds. approved. Uh,
6: uh, absolutely hundreds. Actually, Peter, yeah.
2: uh, Peter I'm just going to get uh, Bob just to, t- to talk about that for just a second. Uh, yeah, Bob, say that again.
3: Yeah. There are four FDA approved. There are actually multiple strains of botulinum toxin. Mm. Uh, Botox happens to be a type A strain. Um, There are two other type A strains and one type B strain that are all approved now in the United States for use. I do want to point out that it's really critical that if you're going to seek out treatment, that you ensure that you're using uh, botulinum toxins that are coming from the manufacturer. There have been several cases um, in the news media. One I know of in Florida, for instance, where toxin was gotten on the black market. You can get it, you know, on the internet for you know significantly reduced amounts of of, of, of money, and people uh, died because the 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 amount that they got was significantly higher than what would it, one would otherwise get. So it's really critical that you don't try to cut corners.
6: It's not the sort of thing we you decide you're going to have a botox party, which apparently was the idea at one stage you get somebody, you'd all sit around and you'd, you'd inject each other. But it's a bit like saying, let's have a hair color party. You just don't do it.
2: Right. And it's, um, we should say, though, I mean, uh, we we did uh, a comical introduction about this, but there are, there actually are these places, which I would think me is very alarming, where they do sell DIY. Botox uh, and mm. then have videos for people to, to use them. It doesn't seem right. Um, Eric Finzi, uh while we have you too, this is sort of a point that you make too, that uh, you make Peter's point, but in a different way. A lot of things in the wrong dose are poisons.
5: Pretty much I would say everything in the wrong dose is a poison. And that the actually if something is a very potent poison then it's more likely that you might be able to develop it as a as a good drug because if it's very specific. So, for instance, let's take the example of water. I don't think any of us would think of water as a poison. But if I were to drink 20 gallons of water in the next hour, it would kill me. And water is this life-saving thing. It's all a question of dose. Now, with Botox, it just happens to be potent. If you look at many blood pressure pills, some of them were found from – people shooting poison darts at each other in the, in the rainforests of South America because it drops your blood pressure and you pass out. So they would use that on prey, and then some astute clinicians said, hey, wait a second, maybe we can use that for blood pressure. So I think that the whole concept that you know poison is dangerous, yes, it's dangerous, but uh, it actually can make any drug very clinically useful um and extraordinarily safe I mean I would venture to say that Tylenol is a riskier drug if you use too much of it. If you have 20 times as much Tylenol and have a couple of drinks, you're going to lose your liver.
2: Right, actually, that, that, that's been covered a lot, uh, and This American Life did a whole uh, episode about this, that uh, Tylenol can be incredibly uh, dangerous if you exceed the dosage. Hey, we're going to have to wrap things up here. Oh, I'm sorry, Adi, I just we're kind of running out of time here. Um, I think I just have to sort of thank everybody. Peter McInnes, we do hope, we will be back for our Poison show. He's the author of Poisons, From Hemlock to Botox to the Killer Bean of Calabar, Eric Finzi, uh, author of The Face of Emotion. How Botox affects our moods and relationships. Dr. Adi Tarinata uh, is an oral maxillofacial radiologist. Oh, now I can say it at the Yukon School of Dental Medicine. Dr. Robert Krug uh, is a physiatrist and medical director at Mount Sinai Rehabilitation Hospital. I can't say the rest of the title because I'll run out of time. Thanks to all of you. Thanks especially to Betsy Kaplan. We'll be back tomorrow with the news.
1: Two more things to fall. So I am thinking of getting injected. I'm getting older sooner
0: than... I expected.
1: In sad news today, the sun is going to crash into the earth and we're all going to die. Can the sun crash into the earth? Who knows? Join us for an update later tonight on the news at 10, if we make it.